0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news in comment, Inquiring minds and the heart of the matter. This is Thursday, February 14th, 2019. Thank you for supporting Independent News by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Happy Valentine's Day. Here's to giving and getting love in all its incarnations. Spread some love today, individually and collectively. We need it now as much as we ever did. And for you, good news about democracy and the environment. I promise. Although not entirely certain, it appears there will be no new government shutdown tomorrow night. As this program was recorded Thursday morning, a plan to fund the government was inching its way through Congress on its way to the president. It's expected to pass the House today and expected to also pass the Senate in time for Trump to sign it before midnight tomorrow night. Each party had to give up something, and they did. Democrats removed for now their demand for a cap on detained immigrants. They can't be seen as part of another shutdown either, if they hope to prove to voters that they are different from Republicans. Republicans gave up on the wall in exchange for better border security. Republicans had to give up more than Democrats because they also bore the blame for the shutdown. And they know most voters are against the wall and because they want to get this behind them so they can also start campaigning for 2020, like the president. Compromise is how government is supposed to work, and both Republicans and Democrats have proven they're up to the task, a good sign about democracy can the president also play nice? Once again, he has little choice. Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell is urging the president to sign the bill. White House sources say Trump will sign it, even though it does not contain any money for his wall, and even though it's nowhere near the $5.7 billion he's demanded. This bill, agreed upon by Democrats and Republicans, gives him just under $1.4 billion, not for a wall, but for a fence, 55 miles long. The bill also gives another $1.7 billion for enhancing border security in ways more practical than a wall, plus 40,000 new beds for the captured immigrants. Donald Trump says he's very unhappy with the bill, but added, we're supplementing things and moving things around and we're doing things that are fantastic. He said he has other options. He really doesn't. No good ones anyway. Not signing the bill is not an option. Trump will sign the bill to keep the government running because he's still suffering the blame for the shutdown that ended less than three weeks ago, a record-setting shutdown that did and continues to do damage. Taking advice again from his TV pals is also not a good option. And they're at it again, Sean Hannity calling the funding measure a garbage bill. Listening to Fox hosts and Ann Coulter had a lot to do with that 35-day shutdown that was ultimately blamed on Trump. His cheerleaders at Fox are bitterly disappointed, and after all they've done to try to throw fuel on Trump's false claims of killers and drug dealers coming over the border to steal our jobs and rape the women, he could use an emergency declaration, although that's not a good option either. In a private meeting two weeks ago, Mitch McConnell told Trump an emergency declaration would be condemned by Congress, which, if Trump vetoes that resolution, would turn his own party against him, forcing them to override his veto it's Congress that spends the money in this government. And although the president could bypass Congress with an emergency declaration, Congress is never happy about being bypassed on money. And Republicans worry that if they let Trump declare the border a national emergency, what issue might prompt an emergency declaration from a future Democratic president? Health care for all, perhaps, or something equally crazy? McConnell's worried he wouldn't get away with letting Trump's executive orders on immigration slide After condemning Obama for using an executive order to create the DREAM Act and other reforms. And McConnell's worried that with some of his far right wingers, like Florida's Rick Scott, urging Trump to declare that emergency, the party that controls the Senate will be split and divided. And the Pentagon says it's still reviewing whether its construction budget can be confiscated by Trump to build a wall. The Pentagon has just under a billion dollars in that budget, and that's less than Trump would get from Congress no wall and no good options. This marks the second time this year Trump's been cornered into signing the government funding bill that contains no money for his wall, the thing his red hats were cheering for again just the other night in El Paso. They may be as disappointed as Sean Hannity. Trump's campaign lie that he would build a big beautiful wall on the southern border and make Mexico pay for it is coming in for a landing. The only way Trump and his remaining supporters can survive this is inside an alternate reality where the wall is already being built and that money to build it will be found somewhere else. He's sticking with that lie as he continues to modify it. The banner at his campaign rally in El Paso earlier this week did not read build the wall. It read finish the wall. You can't finish unless you start. We're already building it, Trump has declared more than once. Well, there have been repairs and fencing, but more than two years into his presidency, not one inch of his big, beautiful wall has been built. And it isn't wanted or needed. Upon his unwanted visit to El Paso, Trump again falsely claimed that a wall had saved El Paso from its dangerous city status to that of a safe city. El Paso officials gathered reporters ahead of Trump's arrival to say that two of those three claims are false First, they insisted El Paso was never a dangerous city and remains safe today. Second, they reminded everyone again that El Paso doesn't have a wall, some fencing, but no wall, that the fence had no effect on the crime rate, and that there is no crisis at the border. Local officials gathered that day to tell anyone who would listen that Trump was wrong about every falsehood that he would repeat again that night. El Paso also rebuked Trump with a turnout of anti-wall voters across the street, with a crowd twice as big as his backing up their local officials. Trump predictably claimed his crowd was bigger. But judging from his new campaign banner, Trump is now ready to finish the wall he hasn't started to fight a crisis that doesn't exist. Money can't buy love, but it does buy groceries, medicine, and the other stuff we and our families need to live and we are living in the upside down. Despite the low-as-it-can-go unemployment and the seven million job openings and the slowly increasing wages, we're racking up debt faster than we're saving. And now a record seven million Americans are at least three months behind on their car payments. That's a million more than in 2010. And for most Americans, making that car payment is their top priority, more than the rent or the mortgage. Most people can't get to work or the doctor without a car. And in the midst of all this, interest rates went up. Consumer advocates say you should get a low interest car loan at a local credit union or community bank, never from the dealership. The numbers haven't been this bad since the Great Recession, which lasted for years after Wall Street tanked the economy in 2007. Economists say this inability to pay our bills with our debts growing instead of shrinking means increased corporate profits are not trickling down that the strong economy is not trickling down, that the Republican tax cut is not trickling down. Your tax refund will be likely nearly 10% smaller this year under the Trump tax bill passed by a Republican Congress last year. You may not get a refund at all. You may even owe more While corporate taxes dropped by 14% and while some taxpayers saw a little bump in their take-home pay, the average taxpayer is getting a refund that's 8.5% smaller, more than $200 smaller than last year's average, according to the IRS. The average refund last year was $2,035. This year it's $1,865. Popular deductions, including state taxes, mortgage interest, alimony, moving expenses, school donations, and others are gone. The Trump tax bill is the main reason refunds are down. And those who didn't adjust their withholdings when those new laws went into effect are paying the price now in many unhappy returns. People are not happy using the social media hashtag GOP tax scam, blaming Trump and saying they would never vote for him again. But if you're at all worried about what you'll have to pay for the special counsel's investigation into Trump and Russia, you can relax. USA Today reports that the feds are starting to sell off all the properties and possessions they've seized from Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and settling the claims filed against the fortune he made in his 10 years as a shady lobbyist. Manafort had to surrender his fortune as part of his initial plea deal. That forfeiture is still on. This alone will net the government nearly $27 million as early as next week. The government is also collecting about $2 million from other individuals nailed in the special counsel's investigation. That nearly $29 million will easily cover the $25 million we've spent on the Mueller investigation so far, with more than $3 million left over. At the very least, the Mueller probe will break even. And that's even after the government has paid back money Manafort cheated out of banks in fraudulent loans. While Trump has claimed that, among other things, the investigation into him is a waste of money. The truth is, the Mueller investigation has already paid for itself with money to spare. But more than money, Americans want to see the results of Robert Mueller's work. A new poll commissioned by the Washington Post shows that more than four out of five of us want that report to be made public in its entirety, Republicans as well as Democrats. Nearly two in three of us feel very strongly about this. These powerful sentiments put more pressure on Congress to see to it that the report is made public. But Congress has yet to even pass a bill to protect the special counsel's job, his investigation, and its results, even as it prepares to confirm an attorney general who will not commit to releasing the entire report. The poll also found that more than six in ten of us would support Congress impeaching and trying to remove this president. Six in ten, if Mueller concludes that Trump conspired with Russia in the 2016 campaign. And nearly that many say they would believe Mr. Mueller's explanation over Donald Trump's. As Mueller approaches the end of his investigation, the public eagerly waits his report. But will they get to see it with William Barr as Trump's attorney general, hand-picked after Barr wrote critically of the Mueller investigation? Barr is being confirmed by the Senate today as this report is being released. The House Judiciary Committee, meanwhile, is calling back for more testimony. Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler says he has witnesses who contradict Whitaker's testimony that he'd had no contact with the White House about the Mueller probe. Nadler has witnesses who say he did. We got some new insights this past week into the conspiracy case being assembled by the special counsel. The whole point of the Mueller probe was to see if the Trump campaign cooperated with Russian efforts to help Trump and hurt his opponents in 2016, from Ted Cruz in the primaries to Hillary Clinton in the general election. The crime of conspiracy, often referenced as collusion, is about two or more parties plotting together to break the law. Over time, we've learned of more than 100 contacts between Trump campaign officials and Kremlin-connected Russians. As with any crime, prosecutors also need to show a motive for the crime, in this case, the crime of conspiring to thwart the U.S. election process. Trump's main goal was to get elected. Many have long suspected that Russia's main goal was to get the U.S. and its allies to drop the economic sanctions placed upon it to punish Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. That appears to be the case, and that appears to be Robert Mueller's case. Now that Mueller knows all the key players, he appears to be looking at Russia's motive for getting Trump elected to get rid of those sanctions. Welcome to the chewy center of the Mueller case. We just got hold this week of the transcript of a closed door hearing in the Paul Manafort perjury case. Like others, this transcript is heavily redacted. But what isn't blacked out offers a peek at Mueller's collusion case. At one point in the hearing, the topic was whether Trump's 2016 campaign manager was lying to try to get a presidential pardon from Trump, who has praised Manafort for his loyalty. Mueller's team has shown the judge evidence that Manafort lied about his contacts with Konstantin Kalimnik, who has close ties to Russian intelligence. Some of that evidence comes from Manafort's former right-hand man, Rick Gates, who's turned state's witness. After showing the judge that evidence, a Mueller prosecutor told the judge that one of those meetings, quote, goes, I think, very much to the heart of what the special counsel's office is investigating. This, he said, goes to the larger view of what we think is going on. This meeting was just after Trump had won the nomination, Manafort, Gates and Kalimnik each leaving separately through different doors. According to Mueller's evidence, Trump's top campaign chiefs were meeting with a Russian in a New York cigar bar called the Grand Havana Room, just a few blocks from Trump Tower. It was August, and the 2016 presidential campaign was getting as hot as the weather. It had not been two weeks since WikiLeaks had dumped emails Russia had stolen from the Democratic Party, and this was just a few days before Trump called on Russia to hack Clinton's emails. And a few days after that... Trump said he'd heard that the people of Crimea would actually be happier with Russia than, quote, where they are. It was during this time that Manafort and Gates arriving separately met up with Russian operative Konstantin Kalimnik. In that meeting, the men talked about how to settle the Ukraine conflict, something very much of interest to the Russian government. That club, on another occasion, is where Trump's campaign manager handed the Russian spy the latest polling numbers gathered by the Trump campaign. Did Kalimnik give Paul Manafort anything in return? That, said Mueller's prosecutor, goes very much to the heart of what the special counsel's office is investigating. That meeting, he said to the judge, and what happened at that meeting is of great significance to the special counsel. On the campaign trail, meanwhile, Trump continued to praise Russian President Vladimir Putin while criticizing U.S. sanctions against Russia. These sanctions were not just hurting Russia, but hurting Trump's efforts to build a Trump Tower in Moscow at the same time he was telling voters he had no business interest there. That goes-to-the-heart statement seems to have revealed that Mueller is investigating coordination between a Russian spy and Trump's campaign manager and that Manafort lied about it to the FBI, the Mueller team, and the Mueller grand jury. And yesterday evening, a judge agreed, meaning Paul Manafort faces new felonies and undoubtedly life in prison unless he's pardoned. In arguing the case that Manafort should be punished for lying, prosecutors revealed their concern that Manafort had been angling for a pardon or using his fake cooperation with them to update the White House on the Mueller probe. But they also revealed that special counsel Robert Mueller is laser focused on charges of conspiracy, also known as collusion. We've learned a lot in those unredacted parts of this new court transcript. A former senior U.S. intelligence official tells the Washington Post that what we have just seen is, quote, the most interesting and potentially significant development we've seen in a long time. For the past two years, Donald Trump has attacked the Mueller investigation with claims of hoax and witch hunt. But now that he's the target of Democratic-led investigations in the House, he has a new dragon to battle. And this dragon doesn't think Mueller's gone far enough in at least one aspect of the Russia investigation. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff doesn't think enough questions have been asked about Trump's finances and his relationship with a bank accused of laundering Russian money. We're not interested, says Schiff, in whether he's a tax cheat or not worth what he says. What we're interested in is does the president have business with Russia that compromises the United States? Schiff wants his committee to focus on Trump's 20-year relationship with Deutsche Bank which is accused of helping Russians move $10 billion out of their country. That same bank has loaned more than $2 billion to Trump's companies. Last year, the special counsel's office told Trump's lawyers they were not after his records from Deutsche Bank. House Democrats, however, are. Trump said Mueller would risk getting fired if he crossed into Trump's businesses. Trump has not and cannot draw such a line for Congress, which is constitutionally assigned to provide oversight of government and to serve as a check on the presidency. But Trump can lash out at the lawmakers, just as he has with Mueller. He told reporters that former prosecutor-turned-House Committee Chairman Adam Schiff is, quote, a political hack. Presidential harassment, Trump declared, adding, and it really does hurt our country. It was in Last week's State of the Union speech that Trump rhymed investigation with legislation in a veiled threat that he would sign nothing passed by Congress so long as the investigating of him continued. Presidents should not bring threats to the floor of the House, replied House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, adding, it's not an investigation, it's oversight, it's our congressional responsibility, and if we don't do it, we would be delinquent in our duties. Not two days after Trump delivered that televised threat the Ways and Means Committee began a process to get hold of the tax returns Trump has kept hidden from the voters. Those returns could implicate the president in crimes involving Deutsche Bank, Russia, and others. The Democrats leading the Ways and Means Committee and all the other committees in the House know they need to proceed carefully, making it clear they're not out to get Trump, just out to get the truth. Chairman Richard Neal tells the Washington Post this needs to be done methodically. There cannot be an ounce of, let's go get him, And although the formal request for those tax returns could be two or three months away, five different House committees are involved, not just Ways and Means. But we may not have to wait those two or three months. Quoting one Ways and Means member, I got to believe the Mueller team already has their hands on the president's tax returns. But there may be a threat to Trump greater than Robert Mueller or the Democratic House, and Trump said virtually nothing about that threat. One of his first acts as president was to fire a federal prosecutor named Preet Bharara, who ran the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, where Trump's business is headquartered and where his business did its banking. So nobody was as surprised as Preet Bharara to hear that his old office had just issued a subpoena to Trump's inaugural committee. And that news came just after we'd learned the committee had paid Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel $175,000 a day to accommodate the event after raising a jaw-dropping $100 million. As dogged as Mueller and Congress might be, they are not nearly as fierce as the prosecutors of the Southern District of New York, the folks who dismantled the Sicilian Mafia. Quoting one of the prosecutors from that case, the Southern District has a long history and a reputation well-deserved of being tenacious and always seeing to taking an investigation wherever it goes, including the top of an organization. That same dogged determination now threatens Trump from an organization that isn't shy about complicated cases, including 9-11 and Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff. And now in its 225th year, that Southern District of New York prosecutor's office. Has subpoenaed Trump's inaugural committee. Unlike Mueller, the SDNY has no limit on what it can investigate, and it cannot be fired. It was the Southern District of New York that raided Michael Cohen's office, and now it's taken hold of the bookkeeping from the Trump campaign. Still, Trump aims his fiery arrows at Mueller and now House Democrats embodied in a more aggressive Adam Schiff. Schiff has hired past and present officials of the National Security Council, including one of Trump's own, to help with the oversight of the Trump administration. It's not unusual for that committee to hire from the national security community. It happens a lot. But Trump was apoplectic at this news. The Dems and their committees are going nuts, he tweeted just before a national prayer breakfast. The Republicans never did this to Obama, he falsely tweeted, accusing Schiff of stealing people who work at the White House. Presidential harassment, he tweeted, repeating the line he'd used with reporters. Which thing do you think had more impact on voters in 2016? Was it the flood of Russian propaganda tweets and Facebook posts giving fuel to right-wing talkers for InfoWars and Fox's so-called news channel? Or was it that everybody needs groceries? At eye level, at every Kroger, Public Safeway, Albertsons, Piggly Wiggly and Giant store in America and in every military commissary for more than a year were the headlines slamming Ted Cruz and then Hillary Clinton and singing the praises of Donald Trump. The big font headlines on the cover of the National Enquirer. It's the paper we love to hate for being the opposite of journalism. But in terms of the voting public, it may be the most powerful publication in America, with most of its power on its front page, reaching those even too embarrassed or disgusted to actually buy it. An ad executive tells the Washington Post the space the Enquirer gave to Trump's campaign is worth about $3 million per month. That would push the value of the gossip rag's contribution to the Trump campaign into tens of millions of dollars inside of a year. It's such powerful placement, says the ad exec, adding, everybody's got to go to the grocery store. The supermarket tabloid, a far bigger influence than a whole farm of Russian trolls, continued to lie about Ted Cruz and prostitutes, about Cruz's dad being tight with the killer of President Kennedy, and the Inquirer continued to lie about Hillary Clinton being near death, and about the pizza parlor she supposedly ran as a cover for a child prostitution ring. The only source the Inquirer named in its Ted Cruz story is Trump loyalist and self-proclaimed political dirty trickster Roger Stone. Those who couldn't make it to the store or saw the cover and had to know more without buying the thing could read this garbage online. The Enquirer made at least one cash contribution as well, paying Playboy model Karen McDougal to keep quiet about the lengthy affair she had with Trump while his wife was pregnant with their first and only child even after the birth. The Enquirer's purchase of the exclusive rights to McDougal's story kept her quiet and just in time for the 2016 election when McDougal was ready to make public allegations. This is why Robert Mueller offered the Inquirer's publisher protection from prosecution over its illegal campaign contribution, only if he and his eye-catching paper would fully cooperate with the investigation, and only if the Inquirer and publisher David Pecker would refrain from committing any further crimes for at least three years. As with any good story, that no further crimes part may prove to be important. It's not common knowledge, unless you're a history buff or you've seen the musical Hamilton, that founding father Alexander Hamilton was the first U.S. official to see his career destroyed by a sex scandal. Hamilton had persuaded New York to sign the new constitution and served as our first treasury secretary, but had to abandon his campaign for president when he revealed the details of a past affair with a married woman and the blackmail he'd paid to her husband to keep it quiet. Hush money and the truth still came out. Soon afterward, Hamilton's political party collapsed and vanished. Hamilton was compelled to defend himself against multiple accusations from a newspaper columnist who specialized in gossip and scandals, and he tried to get ahead of it by letting the facts come out about a past love affair. Extramarital sex and hush money and a tabloid mentality in 1794, just like today. In the past couple of weeks, the National Enquirer was back to working its 2016 magic in what it's called the biggest investigation ever. As it had with Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton, the rag was going after the owner of a media outlet at the forefront of reporting on Trump and Russia and also the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi by a Saudi prince protected by Donald Trump. The cover of a January edition of the Inquirer featured a photo of post-owner Jeff Bezos and the screaming headline, Bezos Divorce, The Cheating Photos That Ended His Marriage. The issue hit the wire racks at Piggly Wiggly and all the others on January 10th and remained there for several weeks. Subheadlines told of Bezos' wild romps on his private jet and promising 11 pages of exclusive photos inside. In smaller font, In the banner above that screaming headline, the Inquirer refers to Bezos as the sleazy Amazon founder. Repeating for emphasis, the Inquirer had called someone else sleazy, man bites dog. Intimate texts published by the tabloid cost Bezos his wife of 25 years. Also, the owner of Amazon and the richest man on the planet with $136 billion and nothing else to lose, Bezos launched an investigation into how the Inquirer had gotten hold of his emails and why. Bezos told the investigator, the best in the blackmail and extortion-fighting business, to spend whatever it takes to get the answers. A week after the hit piece appeared at grocery checkouts, Bezos had gotten an email from the Inquirer's publisher, AMI, threatening to print even more damaging claims and even more damaging photos, including a, quote, below-the-belt selfie, unless his private investigator backed off. Bezos publicly refused that threat in a blog, embarrassing photos be damned. And Bezos accused the inquirer of blackmail and extortion and suggested the motive for those crimes is political and that the tabloid was still doing Trump's dirty work, this time against the publisher of a powerful and focused news outlet that Trump doesn't like. Bezos said the motive may have also been revenge for his paper's pursuit of the truth, in the killing of writer Jamal Khashoggi, a murder apparently ordered by the prince who's being protected from punishment by an American president. That is all now being examined by Robert Mueller, who had just barely let the Enquirer skate for its illegal campaign contributions on the promise he'd not break any laws for three years. Who knew there might be laws against blackmail or extortion? And has the Enquirer violated its immunity agreement with Mueller? Voting a former federal prosecutor, you can sometimes get a pass. It's much harder to get two passes. The Inquirer also urged Bezos by mail to stop saying blackmail and extortion and to stop saying that it had broken any laws or that what it was doing was in any way political. The Inquirer says it stands by its story and that it hasn't broken any laws. The Inquirer's parent company, American Media Incorporated, or AMI for short, says it's conducting its own investigation. To recap, the Inquirer investigated Bezos. Bezos is investigating the Inquirer, and now the Inquirer will investigate it all, and so will the Mueller team. Trump and Inquirer publisher David Pecker have been good friends since the early 1990s. They drifted apart last year after Pecker flipped to help Robert Mueller when his company was caught breaking those campaign finance laws. The other woman's brother, Michael Sanchez, a Trump supporter who's a suspect in exposing his sister's affair with Bezos, says AMI's people told him it was, quote, a takedown to make Trump happy. And that appears to be at least part of what it was. Bezos says he's not the only person the Enquirer has blackmailed. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ronan Farrow says the notorious publisher also tried to blackmail him. In June of 2017, Trump threatened MSNBC hosts Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski with a hit piece in the National Enquirer. It's more politically powerful than the Internet or the Washington Post, but the prognosis for the National Enquirer may be much worse than it ever was for Hillary Clinton. Bloomberg News reports parent company AMI has a negative net worth at the moment and is now more than $1 billion in debt and it has now taken on the richest man in the world. If you google the phrase Magic Kingdom, a number of listings appear at the top of the page for Disney World. The Magic Kingdom was the original name for the original Disneyland theme park in California, but was later assigned to just one of the parks that make up Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. Disney trademarked the phrase Magic Kingdom in the mid-1970s. But that did not stop the publishers of the National Enquirer, which used the phrase again and again inside a special magazine it put out last year, displayed in glossy color wherever the Enquirer was sold. AMI apparently decided not to use Magic Kingdom on the cover, opting for The New Kingdom instead. It was entirely a public relations piece, nearly a hundred-page tourism brochure, like something you'd find on the desk in a hotel room and AMI knew, knew it so well, it even asked the U.S. Justice Department if it should register as a foreign agent in putting out that shiny booklet. The magazine hailed Mohammed bin Salman as the most influential Arab leader, handsome and smiling at a perfect 32 years old. Meet the next king, it declared. Subheadlines include that our closest Middle East ally is destroying terrorism and how the prince is improving the lives of his people. This is the same prince believed to have ordered the murder of a U.S. resident and journalist Jamal Khashoggi of the Washington Post. We don't know how many copies of the New Kingdom were actually sold with a cover price at 14 bucks, but we know Walmart took shipments totaling 200,000 copies. The ones that didn't sell, presumably most of them, were shipped back to AMI's distributor. So why go through all that? What was that all about? Why was the publisher of a shady tabloid putting out a glossy 97-page full-color magazine praising Saudi Arabia and its crown prince? By several accounts, Inquirer publisher David Pecker has wanted to buy Time magazine for years. The New York Times source for the story says that Pecker was hoping some of that sweet Saudi money would do the trick and that he might start selling publications in, as the flyer calls it, the Magic Kingdom. In 2013, Trump tweeted that Pecker would be, quote, a brilliant choice as CEO of Time, adding, nobody could bring it back like David. That was just three years after AMI's last bankruptcy. The New York Times reported last March that Pecker was attending events with a Saudi emissary as that Saudi official was touring the United States. In July of 2017, that emissary and David Pecker were at the White House chatting with Donald Trump and getting their pictures taken with Jared Kushner. Fun fact, AMI is also the publisher of Men's Journal, Flex, and Muscle and Fitness, and it owns and operates the Mr. Olympia contest. But the Saudis seem far more interested in AMI's National Enquirer, and that's not the only media outlet in which the Saudis have shown interest. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was joined on a yacht in the Red Sea in August by the executive chairman of Vice Media. The paper reports that any partnership between the Saudis and Vice is unlikely, but that the prince was interested in generating a positive image, especially with younger news consumers. That positive image is getting harder for the prince to maintain. The New York Times reports Bin Salman told a top aide in 2017 he would use, quote, a bullet on journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The Times says the words were captured by U.S. intelligence a year before a gang of Saudi thugs would strangle Khashoggi and cut up his body with a bone saw before toting his remains out of the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Khashoggi went into that embassy to pick up papers so he could get married after fleeing the Saudi land he loved for fear of this very fate. Living in the U.S., he wrote about the Middle East for the Washington Post and was critical of the Saudi government and its handsome young crown prince. The Times reports bin Salman told an aide a year before Khashoggi's murder he'd use a bullet to make Khashoggi stop criticizing the Saudi government under Mohammed bin Salman. Last October, Republican and Democratic senators alike demanded that something be done, and they urged the president to announce within 120 days who ordered Khashoggi's death and to decide whether there will or won't be sanctions against Saudi Arabia for that killing. But well over 120 days have passed, and Trump has not done what senators directed him to do. The Trump White House says the administration has no obligation to respond to the senator's demands and says it's already done plenty to sanction the Saudis for, quote, this heinous act. New Jersey Democrat Bob Menendez responded that he was, as he put it, very disappointed and that it demonstrates what the administration has wanted all along for the Khashoggi murder to be forgotten was a striking piece of evidence this week that Donald J. Trump is not fit to serve as president. In one of his televised cabinet meetings, Trump said he was thinking about staging a parade in Washington on the 4th of July, really a gathering, he added, perhaps at the Lincoln Memorial. The wheels continued to turn. It could be a very exciting day, he said, a salute to America on July 4th or July 4th weekend, somewhere around that area something which would become perhaps a tradition, said the man with the nuclear codes. For two straight years, all Trump had to do was look out a window at the White House to see there already is a tradition, that there already is a salute to America, that there already is a parade, that there already is a gathering among the monuments for a gigantic free concert with fireworks. And Trump was at the White House, for these past two independence days. Not at Mar-a-Lago. He was at the White House. Between golf outings, he dropped in on a South Lawn picnic for service members and tweeted, Happy 4th of July! Our country is doing great! Great was in all caps to show he really meant it. What Trump didn't do over his two independence days as president was swear in new citizens, as George W. Bush and Barack Obama had done. Instead, he was tweeting about the violent gangs of MS-13. Trump never did get his $92 million military parade. Maybe he could have some other kind of parade. Maybe he could start a new tradition, maybe a salute to America, honor around July 4th, a parade, or maybe just a big gathering. A bold idea from a bold man who doesn't seem to have a clue. Have you seen the wall he says he's already building and ready to finish? No, and neither has anyone else. In his new book, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe writes that officials at the Justice Department discussed ways to use the 25th Amendment to remove the 45th President of the United States. That amendment allows top administration officials to remove a president who is not mentally fit to perform his job properly your valentine's day gift of good news about the government and the environment plus bob's commentary and is this strong weed or is that a tiger in the final segment up next thank you for using my amazon link at buzzburbank.com for valentine's day and all your shopping year round at home and at work your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening so please bookmark it as your everyday shopping button I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchased through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just click the Amazon logo at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page and then bookmark that. On your desktop browser, the Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent reporting through the PayPal donate button that's right there. And thank you. If you'd like to ride a bunch of different roller coasters all in one day, Cedar Point is the amusement park for you on the banks of Lake Erie in Sandusky, Ohio. But Sandusky is now even more important because it's just made election day a paid holiday for its workers. From now on, while they're celebrating Columbus Day over in Columbus, city workers in Sandusky will work the day through without acknowledging the sailor who didn't discover America. And when election day comes, while other Americans are trying to vote before or after work or skipping voting altogether, the city workers of Sandusky, Ohio will have the day off with pay so they can go vote. The unions representing the cops, the firefighters, and the other city workers didn't at first want to give up Columbus Day, but When they heard they could get a paid day in trade come November, they were all in. The Sandusky city manager says it's a small gesture, but a good example for other cities to follow. Other cities also dropping the Columbus Day holiday farce. If enough cities do it, he says, quote, maybe that's enough to tip the scales in an election. Sandusky has roller coasters and Sandusky's got democracy. Whenever a political party takes over the U.S. House of Representatives, it usually tries to sum up its mission in what is officially labeled as House Resolution No. 1, or H.R. 1 for short. For the Democrats this year, H.R. 1 passed as H.R. 1s always do. But because that's a Democratic platform, the Republicans in the Senate will never pass it, and even if they did, this president would not sign it into law. So, when the party that controls the House doesn't control the Senate or the White House, those HR 1s are sometimes just symbolic, a statement of position that, in this case, Democrats would like to see become law. And perhaps someday it will. Unfortunately, the news coverage of this HR 1 focused on its requirement that presidential candidates make public their tax returns, clearly inspired by Trump's refusal to show his, unlike any other president in modern history. But there's a lot more to H.R. 1 than just that, much of it about expanding voting rights. Under the Constitution, states control their own elections, but the federal government has a say in national races, including the House, the Senate, and the White House. The Democrats' bill would make big changes in the federal voting system. The Democrats' bill would make Election Day a federal holiday, which would make Sandusky, Ohio, very proud. It would make Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell very mad he says it would cost taxpayers too much money. Perhaps he hadn't heard about the Columbus Day trade-off idea yet. McConnell calls this holiday-for-voting thing a power grab by Democrats. That, he said, is what it smells like. To others, it smells more like democracy, this radical idea of letting people vote. The Democrats' bill also expands the Voting Rights Act, which has been partly dismantled by a Supreme Court decision. It promotes automatic voter registration, online registration, early voting, and it would ban states from restricting mail-in ballots. The bill would also require states' voting systems to be tested before every federal election. This For the People Act, as it's nicknamed, further bans foreign contributions and requires super PACs to reveal who donated $10,000 or more. It imposes new ethics rules, not just on the president, but on those who serve in Congress. And even though this For the People Act will never pass in the Senate, it sets a higher bar for all Democratic candidates. It tells voters what they can expect from Democrats. And it sets the table in case the party gets control of the Senate and the White House as well in 2020. And here's a surprise twist of encouraging for democracy news, even in the Trump era. In the past year, there have been more advances in LGBT rights than losses. In state legislatures around the country, there were more bills passed supporting LGBT rights than there were bills aimed at suppressing those rights. This, according to the Human Rights Campaign Foundation in its annual State by State Equality Index, there were still plenty of haters. No fewer than 110 anti LGBT bills were proposed in 2018. 110. The far better news. Only two of them passed in Kansas and Oklahoma. So-called conversion therapy was banned in Washington, Delaware, Maryland, New Hampshire, and Hawaii. Laws to protect transgender people were passed in Vermont and New Hampshire. The foundation says 2018 was better than the year before when a dozen anti-LGBT bills were passed. The Human Rights Campaign Foundation says 2018 was a banner year. And you probably never expected anyone to say that. There was surprising and good news this week about the environment. We'll be protecting more of it. The two parties that worked together to keep open the government had simultaneously united to blanket federal conservation protection over one million acres of additional land. Here's how united two parties can be. The vote was 92 to 8. One lawmaker called it one of the biggest bipartisan wins for this country I've ever seen in Congress. They proved they can do it. Our government can still work. The vote means a million new acres of wilderness are protected from mining and that the Land and Water Conservation Fund will never again run dry by making its funding permanent. The newly protected land is in California, Utah, New Mexico, and Oregon. Eight national parks will be expanded, including Joshua Tree, and three new parks will open, along with five new national monuments and the expansion of two existing ones. Natural landscapes will be preserved, and although there will be trails, most vehicles will be banned. The canyons will remain quiet and peaceful. Except for designated areas, sportsmen can do all the legal hunting and fishing they want, It also protects 225 miles of rivers in Connecticut and Massachusetts and cancels mining claims in Montana and Washington State. The bill offers habitat protection for more than 380 species of birds, and it protects an Obama program called Every Kid Outdoors that allows fourth graders and their families to visit our national parks at no cost. Nearly every senator who voted yes on this bill got something out of it to take home to their constituents. They all got something out of it and reportedly saved taxpayers 9 million dollars in the process. It also runs counter to the environmental policies of the current president. The schools in Denver were limping along on substitutes this week as the contract teachers were on strike for higher pay. Preschool classes had to be canceled. It is Denver's first teacher strike in a quarter century. It affects more than 71,000 students at 147 schools. The school district says it's making sure its guest teachers have all cleared background checks. It was a year ago today that 17 people were slaughtered by gunfire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Survivor and activist David Hogg was frustrated at the lack of political response to gun violence, especially now that he'd heard gunshots in his own school. We need to do something, he said. And he and others did. They marched, they executed a nationwide school walkout, and they got into the White House to make their case to the president. And they registered people to vote, contributing in their own way to the outcome of the 2018 midterm election. Florida's new governor, Ron DeSantis, has made it clear he backs arming teachers as the answer to school safety. In other states, about 70 new gun control laws were passed by both Democrats and Republicans in 26 states and in Washington, D.C., There were bans on bump stocks and caps on magazine sizes, new age limits and new background checks, mainly because of the activism of the students who survived the Parkland massacre. The number of laws expanding gun rights shrank from the year before, and for a variety of reasons, the NRA grew weaker. There was far less progress in Congress, especially with Republicans in control of both houses, but even they passed a ban on bump stocks. The Democrats who now control the House last night passed the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, and they plan to keep pushing forward. There was also a new focus after the Parkland massacre on mental illness as a prime cause of gun violence. It isn't, according to a study from the University of Texas Medical Branch just published in the Journal of Preventive Medicine. The study found that people with access to guns are 18 times more likely to threaten another person than people without access. Researchers surveyed young adults in Texas about whether they owned guns and about their levels of anxiety, depression, impulsivity, and other mental health issues. About 100,000 Americans are shot each year. About 35,000 of them, more than a third of them, die from those shots, making it a major public health problem. Not just a mental health problem, says the study. It's a gun problem. It's a growing problem for the TSA. Federal airport security agents are confiscating nearly a dozen guns a day at airports across the country. Last year, Wild West America hit a new high. Screeners confiscating a record 4,239 guns, up 7% from the year before. And 86% of those guns were loaded, and more than a third had a round in the chamber. More than half the nation's airports reported confiscated guns, mostly in the South and the West. Dallas-Fort Worth and Love Field, Austin and George Bush International, Fort Lauderdale, Phoenix, Denver and Nashville. Atlanta, being the nation's biggest air travel hub, is the and tootin' record setter, confiscating far more guns than any other airport and scoring the highest rate of loaded guns. And although fewer people are smoking cigarettes, more people are becoming addicted to nicotine. Left in the dust by Juul, the other e-cigarette companies Have now increased their nicotine to match that of Joule's. While those other companies were selling concentrations of 1% and 2%, Joule arrived in stores with a 5% concentration. A single 5% pod delivers as much nicotine to the body as a pack of cigarettes. The greater the concentration, up to a point, the more quickly the nicotine gets to the brain. That may actually help adults who want to give up cigarettes but it more easily hooks teenagers who are getting that nicotine buzz for their very first times. And e-cigarettes have made this highly addictive drug much more affordable than smoking cigarettes. A 15-year-old boy told CNN he tried a jewel in the eighth grade, and quoting him, I realized I couldn't stop. When I started hearing all the facts, it was already too late. I was already hooked. He says he saw that 5% warning on the package, but didn't know what it meant. 5%, says the boy, doesn't seem like that much out of 100. Now he says he doesn't want this to someday hook his little sister. I just want to stop this as soon as possible, he says, so we can stop addicting younger kids. Ohio teenager Ethan Lindenberger isn't the only kid who's done what he's done. He's just the one who's gotten the most TV time for it. Ethan, like other children, was raised in an anti-vaxxer household, raised by parents who, out of a sincere love for their children, kept their children from getting crucial vaccinations based on misinformation. Fear, rumors, debunked data, and conspiracy theories found comfort in the internet, where for some, it's like falling down a rabbit hole. People are inclined to click on links that support their fears, their theories. So the anti-vax movement grew but today's young people are doing smarter research on the internet and finding out that their well-intentioned parents had exposed them and others to serious health risks. God knows how I'm still alive, wrote young Ethan, after years of trying to show his mother the facts, including that vaccines do not cause autism. Kids these days are fact-checking their parents, an idea foreign to those who grew up at another time. And like Ethan, teens are finding legal ways to finally get the vaccinations they've been denied. As a high school senior, Ethan approached his pastor, who mentioned he is legally free to make that decision. Eight days before Christmas, Ethan walked into a health department office and got his shots for Hep A, B, HPV, and influenza. He's now working to get states to lower the age of consent for the other vaccinations and to stop giving parents unnecessary exemptions from that law. And as a measles epidemic spreads through Oregon and Washington, Ethan is still trying to persuade his mom to get his younger brothers and sisters immunized. Remember how gun sales took off after Obama was elected and reelected and every time there was a mass killing that gun advocates feared would lead to more gun control laws? Well, it's like that with Donald Trump and IUDs the birth control device known as the IUD. Within 30 days of the 2016 election, the number of women getting those implants shot up by nearly 22% compared to that same time the year before. They knew he was out to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and in 2017, Trump did in fact strip the part of Obamacare that required employers to provide coverage for birth control. Now, his order was frozen last month by a federal judge who ruled that part of the law stays in place for now. Still, the IUDs keep selling under Donald Trump. In her little black stitched purse, 17-year-old Martha Everett had her prom invitation, her lipstick, some photos, and some gum wrappers. But that was nearly 65 years ago. Martha's 82 now. Still, the company tearing down her old high school in Jeffersonville, Indiana, wanted Martha to get her purse back when they found it behind a science lab counter. So they posted a picture of her purse On Facebook, Facebook, we can't live with it, we can't live without it, or can we? Here's Daily Banter and Salon.com's Bob Seska.
1: Thank you, Buzz. This week, I thought I'd try something a little different by way of a cold open, teasing the punchline before the setup. So here goes. There's very little we can do, if anything, as individuals to stop Facebook from doing what it's doing. The sad reality is, is that almost everyone uses the social media megalith, and deleting our accounts in protest is, in a fully immersed digital culture, suicidal. Now, the rest of the story. Imagine for a moment spending years of your life cultivating a Facebook presence, be it a group or a page or a regular old profile. You've spent day after day exhaustively posting statuses and reaching out to new friends, accumulating thousands if not millions of readers. Whether your presence is geared toward promoting a non-Facebook site, or if you're just building a page for the sake of activism or journalism, or your dinner pics you've dedicated valuable years accomplishing exactly what the platform was designed to do creating a network of friends who choose to be part of your Facebook thing. Now imagine Facebook suddenly and without warning deleting all of that work, photos, statuses, memes, videos, death or illness announcements, breaking news items or plain old cat pics in an instant upwards of a decade of your life is obliterated. No explanation, no resolution, no nothing. As many of us have learned the hard way, Facebook's customer support system makes the cable company look speedy and attentive, so good luck complaining to a real-life human being at Facebook. Worse yet, imagine that your Facebook page is directly tethered to your livelihood. This is the most tragic story of all, knowing that hundreds of political Facebook pages, left and right alike, were destroyed back on October 11, 2018. The Purge, as it's become known, wiped out more than 800 pages by colleagues and activists like Kimberly A. Johnson and James Reeder, as well as group pages like Everlasting GOP Stoppers and pro-Trump conservative pages like Nation in Distress. Again, no warnings, no three strikes, no timeouts, just poof, gone, deleted. The explanation by Facebook was that many of these pages were allegedly spamming their own readers, readers, by the way, who directly chose to follow the authors and their pages. Facebook's insufferable tech spaz euphemism was quote, coordinated inauthentic behavior, specifically meaning that the page admins were posting the same articles across two or more other pages. To repeat, these admins were using Facebook within the bounds of what Facebook allowed until, that is, Facebook retroactively changed the rules after the purge. Some of the deleted pages might very well have been violating known rules, but many victims who were caught in the purge didn't do anything wrong, and now their work is gone forever, as are their personal incomes. In the case of the Daily Banter, we managed to avoid the now infamous purge, even though yeah, as an admin, I was posting my articles on the Banter Facebook page, as well as Justin Rosario's page, as well as on both my Bob Seska Show page and my personal profile. But I wasn't purged. Neither was Justin or Ben Cohen or the Daily Banter. Yay for us. Unfortunately, the purge wasn't the only front in Facebook's war against its own users, Back in 2013, Facebook began to monkey with the algorithm that determines which statuses appear in the news feeds of its users. Before the algorithm changed, links to the Daily Banter or Salon or any other news site were given the same visibility as cat pics and food porn, and traffic to the banter was GREAT after the algorithm change however links to non-facebook sites began to be throttled facebook placed arbitrary limits on how often statuses with links were seen in news feeds over time the digital blocking grew more and more restrictive with smaller and smaller respites between contractions Until last summer, Facebook's algorithm grew so suffocating, it became nearly impossible to build traffic from users who, again, chose to receive updates and links from the throttled sites. In terms of the algorithm, Facebook wanted pages like the Banters to pay for exposure in news feeds. If we didn't pay, our statuses were buried and our traffic suffered, meaning that independent low-budget or no-budget pages were screwed with their pants on. In terms of the purge, we're talking about a corporation and its thieving CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, taking punitive measures against innocent users, all because Zuckerberg got caught accepting money from the Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU, and other Russia-linked propaganda farms. Pressured by Congress with the threat of regulatory measures, Zuckerberg freaked out and authorized the purge, and the rest is tragic history. To put it simply, Zuckerberg up. So hundreds of pages operating within the rules were killed. And guess what? There are still 1000s of Russian trolls and literally billions of fake accounts on the platform anyway. Now back to our cold open, like an incurable virus, Facebook has become inextricably embedded into our public lives. If we want to compete in the digital world, whether it's our businesses or our personal thoughts on politics, it's mandatory to be on Facebook unplug and we might as well not bother we might as well cease to exist while other pages and sites will gladly slip into our empty chair it's just not as easy as leaving facebook unilaterally unless everyone does it and the exodus will happen the history of digital media proves it first there was friendster then there was myspace and then there was facebook what's next It's not happening yet, though, but Facebook is flummoxing the world with such harrowing frequency, be it the purge or a conga line of news reports about its gratuitous privacy breaches. Facebook is gradually killing itself. My dream is for another enterprising gaggle of underfed, sleep-deprived Silicon Valley nerds to invent the next big social media platform that'll become what Facebook used to be. A social network where status updates links or not are untethered by mysterious artificial intelligence bots or sinister algorithms designed to extort money from users. Hell Zuckerberg stole the Facebook from the Winklevoss brothers. So perhaps it's time for someone else to steal Zuckerberg's platform by creating one that's basically Facebook classic circa 2012 ish, but with enough structural differences to keep it from being sued and shut down. The time is now. Facebook has to die. And when it does, I'm throwing a party and everyone's invited. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. I'll be there. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com
0: slash bobseskashow or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. He'll have a fresh edition this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. The Rover Rolled Over. NASA's Mars rover Opportunity brought us evidence of water, stunning photographs, and a ream of research. After sputtering out in a dust storm last summer, the rover has now been declared officially dead, and Opportunity is already missed. But it had a good run, sending back data for over 14 years. We certainly got our money's worth. The Mars rover was built to last just three months in that harsh Martian environment. It is now the longest-lasting robot ever sent to the surface of another planet. The research will continue. The new rover Curiosity is still on Mars, still sending back knowledge. By the way, NASA launched our first GPS satellite 30 years ago today. We lost two stars this week, starting with baseball star Frank Robinson, the Hall of Fame outfielder who hit 586 home runs and became the first black manager in Major League Baseball The former Brooklyn Dodger died a week ago today at his home in L.A. He was 83. And actor Albert Finney has also passed at age 83 following a short battle with kidney cancer after having beaten cancer once before. Finney burst into public consciousness in the 1960s as the star of the body comedy Tom Jones, which gave fuel to the British film industry. Here in the U.S., that role won him four Oscars, but he turned down a knighthood each time it was offered Never to become Sir Albert Finney. The Lego Movie Two was expected to open with about fifty-five million dollars in ticket sales. It didn't. It opened with thirty-four million. But it's not the only movie in theaters. To see them all, the previews, show times, and tickets, please click through the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. The Oscar Ceremony a week from Sunday should be a shorter, faster paced show this year, but The people who shot the movie and the people who did the hair and makeup and costumes are taking a hit. The cinematographers, editors, makeup artists, costumers, and others will get their awards during the commercial breaks with just acceptance speech highlights shown later in the show. The show will also move more quickly without a host, just presenters and recipients. And award winners have been told they have 90 seconds from the time their names are called to get up on that stage and finish their thank yous. The hope is more people will watch the Oscars this year and that more people in the eastern half of the United States can still get to bed at a decent hour. Is this really strong weed or is that a tiger? In Houston, police say a group of people broke into an abandoned house to smoke some weed. Once inside, they found a 350-pound tiger in a cage resting on a bed of hay. The cage was secured by nothing more than a nylon strap and a screwdriver. The animal was in good health and well-fed, so it could have easily busted out of that cage. Marijuana is illegal in Texas, but so is owning a tiger, unless you get a wild game permit. Even with a permit, you can't have one in Houston. But the potheads had their wits about them and wisely called 311, Houston's non-emergency number. I'm not lying, a woman told the dispatcher. The tiger was taken to an animal shelter and then to a sanctuary there in Texas. Police are still looking for its owner. It's now been nicknamed Tyson in honor of boxer Mike Tyson's tiger in the movie The Hangover. In Australia, you expect to find kangaroos, you just don't expect to find them in a public restroom. But when David Muggleton entered one at a campground in South Australia, his path to the stalls was blocked by a kangaroo munching on a roll of toilet paper. Muggleton shot video, of course, asking the Rue, Do you mind if I get past? And how is that even tasty? You never know what animal might turn up or where. In Minnesota, a woman called police to report a horse in the house. Not just in the house, in the basement. Through the windows from outside, police watched the horse wander from room to room. We do not know how the horse got into the house, much less the basement. And police haven't said how they removed the horse, but they say the house horse was not injured. A video from Nashville shows police rounding up a loose chicken using pieces of Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. The chicken is now back on a healthier diet with an animal rescue group. West Palm Beach, Florida has its stolen monkey back. Whoever swiped a little one-pound monkey from the Palm Beach Zoo this week has returned it. Apparently, little Goldie was more of a challenge than the thief expected, or guilt set in. Goldie needs inflammation meds every day police still hope security video will help them catch the monkey snatcher since she's worth about $10,000 on the illegal pet market. Fishtails. In Wisconsin, a spear fisher landed a sturgeon that was just over seven feet long and weighed 171 pounds. It's estimated the fish lived to be about 130 years old. The fisherman says catching that monstrous creature is bittersweet. But the real whopper comes from Kentucky, where a man using pieces of biscuit for bait caught a 20-pounder, about two and a half feet long. It was a 20-pound goldfish, and it put up quite a fight. And to think it started out as somebody's little pet goldfish, which it most likely did. Fisherman Hunter Anderson threw it back, threw back the giant goldfish, saying, what am I going to do with it, really? I thought it deserved to swim another day. In Oregon, a wildlife center is offering, in exchange for a $20 donation, a chance to name a fish after your ex and watch it be fed to a bear. The Wildlife Images Rehabilitation Center in Oregon calls its Valentine's Day promotion catch and release. And in New Zealand, researchers examining frozen leopard droppings made a surprising discovery. Inside one, they found a USB thumb drive. They cleaned it up and plugged it in and saw somebody's vacation photos. They say the photos, yes, it still worked. They say the photos reveal the photographer was in a kayak wearing blue shoes. The scientists at the New Zealand National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research say they would be happy to return the thumb drive to its owner if he will kindly provide them with a replacement leopard dropping. Hero Dogs in Minnesota, a man taking out the trash noticed his black lab acting strangely, perking up her ears and looking at him in that Timmy's fallen down a well kind of way. So Tim Kerfman followed his dog Midnight to the other side of the house, where he found his 87-year-old neighbor Noreen lying in the snow. She had been trying to fill her bird feeder when she fell and couldn't get up. Tim's wife helped Noreen into some warm, dry clothing, but Noreen says Midnight is her personal hero and midnight got a lot more treats than usual that day. And in New York, a family dog slipped out of her home and started running up and down the street through the neighborhood, barking. Police responded to a call about a pit bull running wildly through the streets, barking. And then Sadie the pit led police to her own backyard, where they too could smell the gas leak. Sadie had pushed open a sliding glass door and broke through a fence to warn the humans of that neighborhood of a gas leak that could have led to a deadly explosion. But a stuffed animal toy was the hero for two-year-old Ezra, who was with his mom at Rotolo's Pizzeria in Fairhope, Alabama. As in other cases, Ezra had climbed inside the claw machine to pick out his favorite toy. Quoting mom, I'd been checking on the kids every couple of minutes to make sure they were playing nicely, and all of a sudden my daughter ran over and said Ezra was in the machine. It literally, she says, took him seconds. They do move quickly at that age. No one at the pizzeria had a key to the machine, so they called the fire department while the toddler sat calmly among the toys. Once rescued, young Ezra was allowed to keep the toy he had chosen, proving there's more than one way to get one of those toys. A successful crime, if there is such a thing, involves degrees of luck and skill. These guys had neither. In New Orleans, a man walked into a Popeyes and tried to open the register. He didn't know how, so he took some chicken instead. He was arrested a short time later. Perhaps it was the aroma of Louisiana fried chicken that gave him away. And in Waterville, Maine, a special agent for the state police named Lang was sitting in his car in the parking lot and didn't know that the bank there had just been robbed. But he could tell something was up when he saw a man run across four lanes of traffic into that parking lot dropping his gun and his money, which then scattered with a gust of wind. Special Agent Lang got his man, the one he didn't expect to get. The gun turned out to be of the BB variety. The weapon of choice for a grandma in Texas was a scooter, her granddaughter's scooter. What exactly is the best defense against two men wearing clown masks and wielding machetes and threatening you and your spouse if you don't hand over all your valuables? Aretha Cardinal wasn't having it when these evil clowns approached her and her husband Joe in the driveway. Miss Aretha picked up her granddaughter's scooter and hit one of those clowns, whereupon both these clowns took off running, with Aretha and Joe successfully chasing them away for good. These two clowns are now in jail on aggravated robbery charges. Aggravated? Grandma Aretha was downright mad. As anyone who's ever been to a beach knows, men have nipples too. They don't have to cover them up as the law requires of women. Some women think that's grossly unfair, and to make their case, they have sunbathed topless on a beach in New Hampshire. And they were arrested and convicted, and they challenged their convictions in the New Hampshire State Supreme Court. This week, they lost their case. Their convictions were upheld because their breasts were not, at least not in a way that covered their nipples. It's a setback for women who find this discriminatory, and those women exist across the country. There was a similar setback in Missouri in late 2017, but earlier that year a federal judge blocked a law in the city of Fort Collins, Colorado that banned topless sunbathing. That means the challenges will continue. Those free-the-nipple activists in New Hampshire are now considering taking their case to the United States Supreme Court. And finally, as this Valentine's Day approached, a strange woman was approaching students at Towson University in Maryland This woman in her 50s, wearing a multicolored scarf, was approaching female students to show them a photograph of her son to ask if they would date him. Campus police have issued an incident advisory that includes photos of the woman. The campus police chief says the woman's behavior isn't criminal but, quote, may cause concern. It certainly will for her son. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and Comment. The preceding presentation
1: was brought to you by the Realm Network.